0: Welcome to episode 3 of the Media Sport podcast series, which is available on both Apple iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm your host Brett Hutchins, an Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. In the opening two episodes of the podcast series, we spoke to two thinkers, Andy Meyer and Raymond Boyle, who specialize in the study of sports media and technology. In this episode our focus shifts to someone who is an expert on mobile and locative media and his work has many original and insightful things to say about the relationships between space, place, location and mobile technologies. As I speak I am sitting in the office of Rowan Wilkin from Swinburne University in Melbourne. Rowan is a prolific writer whose books and edited collections include Teletechnologies, Place and Communities and Mobile Technologies and Place. His most recent collection is titled Locative Media, a book that is co-edited with Jared Goggin and published by Routledge. I recently finished reading this new collection, which brings together an impressive range of authors from around the world. It is important reading for those seeking to understand what locative media is, why it matters, and the significant cultural, political and economic issues raised by the likes of Foursquare, camera phones, geotagging, Google Glass, privacy legislation and drones. Rowan's Twitter handle is at endotician, E-N-D-O-T-I-C-I-A-N. Hello Rowan, welcome to the podcast series. Hello. Let's start with an easy one. The pronunciation of, is it locative or locative? Are there two schools of thought
1: here? Uh, there are indeed, Brett. Uh, it's a, been a, a source of uh, some amusement and debate between myself and Jared Goggin over this, but also... Uh, with my, I suppose, my boss here at the Swinburne Institute for Social Research, Julian Thomas, both of whom argue that it's locative because of the Latin and the uh, way in which that's uh, talked about in in the Latin suggests that it should be locative. I think it sounds odd, so I'm running with (laughs) locative. It's an interesting division. (laughs) Now, it
0: it speaks to the thing around what is locative media and why is it important at this moment in time?
1: Yeah, it's um, <coughs> it's. I think what's important about it is uh, uh, increasingly where we are located is something that um, holds significant commercial value. It's been described by marketers in the past as the holy grail of advertising, being able to uh, speak to consumers at the very point of purchase, which I think historically has been hard to kind of track and and make sense of but with the rise of things like smartphones and various other sensor technologies that's becoming uh, an easier uh, thing or something that's within reach. Um, But it also I think is important because it raises a whole uh, series of questions about how we understand the world around us, how we navigate that world, how we interact with those in our various um, day-to-day networks but also mediated social networks Um, and also I think it impacts on um, the issue of location also uh, impacts on how we uh, use portable devices of one kind or another and um, in our routine uses of those increasingly our movements through time and space are being tracked and recorded and in various forms uh, exploited for commercial purposes and other purposes.
0: For the uninitiated uh, what are some of the most I suppose either high profile or more powerful examples of located media in your mind?
1: Yeah uh, so I, I think I mean located media in my understanding of it is media that has some kind of geolocational aspect to it or is connected to, to um, geographical location in some form mm-hmm. so historically it was I guess pioneered within uh, uh, media arts mm-hmm. um, in kind of very experimental forms using a variety of cutting-edge technologies back in you know, pre-smartphone era and with the s- emergence of smartphones Um, It really took off I think with the emergence of uh, the iPhone and since that Android phones but also Google's various mapping uh, technologies. Mm -hmm. So in terms of applications that people will be familiar with, um, there's everything from I suppose uh, Google Street View and Google's Maps and Apple's uh, fraught attempts to replicate uh, Google's Maps. Um, in social media terms, I suppose there's things like Foursquare, which some main listeners may not be familiar with. So, uh, when it when it launched in two thousand and nine, it was a mobile-based um, social networking application that you could uh, check into a venue such as a cafe and register your your attendance at that venue, and you could share that check-in with others in your your network. It's since moved to become more of a search and recommendation service. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's increasingly incorporated into other social media services. So, uh, uh, you know, things like Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter all have uh, geolocational aspects to them that are central to the way in which they function. Mm
0: You recently gave a keynote at the Australian New Zealand Communication Association annual conference where you actually presented your research or some of your research on Foursquare. What were you arguing in that paper? So what what sort of information and and, and evidence are you putting forward about Foursquare?
1: Yeah, so that uh, paper is uh, drawn from a three-year study that I've been doing which is an Australian Research Council... Early Career Researcher Award uh, a Fellowship, and <clears throat> in that study I've been interested in looking at a range of ways in which we might approach and understand uh, location-based services, so from uh, how people use them through to, kind of, I suppose, larger issues of how they, are, how they are run as businesses, what kinds of business models drive those businesses, mm what are the economic, larger economic implications of those, but also what are the policy, and especially privacy, implications of those. So, in that particular keynote, I was trying to bring together, I suppose, two of those three sets of concerns, the business side of things and end use, and thinking about uh, the fairly dramatic um, and fluctuating fortunes of Foursquare as a company since its formation, in uh, 2009 to the present, and the pressures that that particular startup, which is a New York-based startup, has faced in trying to build its location-based service and, uh, I guess, recoup the fairly substantial venture capital money that's been put into it by, at various stages, rethinking what it does as a as an application and as a company and increasingly re-gearing that towards making it a, a commercially oriented venture but then trying to I guess uh, offset or, or read against some of those business moves how people are actually using the application and like I think any application whether it be Instagram or Facebook or, or others uh, use tends to be fairly complicated so it's not a kind of a straightforward case of, you know, people are routinely checking in and doing it all in the same way as everybody who's on the service. What you find is, at times, fairly idiosyncratic uses, um, subversive uses, fairly uh, um, conventional. What you might describe, I guess, as conventional uses, as is as is, I suppose, uh, um, how the tech press would perhaps. Imagine Foursquare to be used by people. And for me, what's interesting about that, um, that interview material with end users is that it, it makes for a, a fairly kind of rich vein of information to then reinterpret what the business is trying to do and how effectively it may or may not be achieving some of their goals depending on you know, how it's been taken up. I should add, too, that this end-user research was done in collaboration with a colleague from Cornell University, um, Dr Lee Humphreys.
0: Okay. And um, it's an interesting challenge for those who study uh, either new companies, new, technolo- new technologies, new sort of uh, sometimes heavily hyped Reports in the business press, that may represent something genuinely new, or uh, uh, only, a, I suppose, a slightly new sheen given to an, something that's actually quite old. How do you go about thinking through how you approach either, I suppose, analytically, but also methodologically, when you're when you're looking at something like Foursquare, given
1: the, its initial hype and then what happens subsequently? Yes, it's a it's a great question, and it's something that I'm. Um, it's kind of an ongoing. Uh, issue that I'm grappling with, and it seems to come up repeatedly when I present this um, research. I think, broadly speaking, the business work I do kind of comes from a political economy of the media kind of approach, which is interested in issues of uh, ownership and economics, and the, I, I suppose, <coughs> pardon me, embedded in that are questions of power. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of method, I think. increasingly uh, it's been difficult to actually get access to corporate data from these companies. I mean obviously what they're doing is is proprietary. The algorithms that they use are proprietary. You can interpret parts of what they do through their patent applications and other things but much of what we gain access to is filtered through the trade press. So for me I guess it's a a process of uh, reading um, as much as I can of the trade press literature around the developments that happen, and piecing together chronologies and I suppose uh, key points in, in the history of these things um, but also trying to sift through and find what I take to be the most reputable voices within that trade press which um, literature which is not necessarily that hard to kind of um, get to over time but then that always has to be I suppose triangulated and it's for me I, I try to do that by uh, keeping abreast of the other work that's been done in my field by critical scholars of working in this area and um, you know new developments in media theory as well that's trying to interpret how we might make sense of these in political terms in economic terms in social and cultural terms Mm. but also I think here is where it's also as I've already alluded to important to talk to how people are actually engaging with these things because it does help to cut through a lot of the hype when you discover that what people are saying is happening with things is not necessarily what is um, happening so I suppose it's a it's an ongoing kind of uh, spiralling process. I suppose of reading a multitude of um, sources and and drawing on various forms of data and trying to um, navigate through that and compose some kind of coherent picture of of what all of that seems to portray.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's always a it's a difficult challenge. Is there a In your mind is there a paradox or a contradiction between the fact that of course a lot of these new location based businesses are built around the notion of people offering information about their personal movements while also it's extremely hard to find anything
1: about the data going on within these organizations absolutely Um, I mean I think it also it goes immediately back to the question of proprietary interests. I think it, it always perplexes me when you when you encounter people who maybe use a new platform and then suddenly that company that owns it um, you know, files for their IPO at the stock market and then that becomes suddenly the commercial side of that application is I suppose wrapped up and and users lament what the platform used to be or or gripe about (laughs) how it's suddenly become commercial and i think many of these users uh, forget that probably from its earliest inception these are commercial enterprises i mean they're commercial in the sense that they've gotten off the ground because they've got angel investment from people that they know who are you know can put in a couple of thousand dollars or more into that enterprise and then that builds through various rounds of venture capital financing and so forth. So uh, I think um, yes it's it's surprising that this information is being willingly shared by us but is, it's not necessarily being reciprocated beyond what the service is setting out to offer and that really becomes the rub. Is I think so long as there is a trade-off our sharing of information in terms of a service that we want and see as valuable, that will go on. I think when, when that trade-off <coughs> is not um, as, as equal, I suppose, in the eyes of the consumer as it might be, then that's when you see, in some situations, movement to other platforms or a retreat from use of that platform or, or so on. Are you, a personal question, are you actually a
0: user of these platforms? I mean, possibly for research purposes, but beyond that as well?
1: <laughs> um, yes, it's a <laughs> You've caught me. Uh, I think my primary use is research-oriented, um, and I'm interested in how they operate, and I, but I'm also, I suppose, because of my professional interest, also quite cautious about try to be cautious about how I how I use them some I think it's like anyone some resonate more than others with me so I tend to use you know, certain platforms outside of my business hours if you like because I find them engaging but it does you know wax and wane
0: mm-hmm. and also uh, moving through into the issue of sport uh, are there any sports that you personally follow or enjoy? Before we sort of move through into the potential academic context,
1: Uh yeah, uh, association football or soccer is probably my my key uh, interest or perhaps even passion at the moment. But I I have had a long standing interest in um, cycling, um, and you know tennis to a certain extent.
0: And how have you engaged? with these sports personally either as a follower or a fan through the use of things like mobile media? Uh,
1: Interestingly tennis not at all. Uh, Cycling probably not through social media either. Mm. Uh, I watch the Tour de France each year on SBS and the Australian uh, broadcaster here Um, and bits and pieces of the other, um, you know, major European uh, cycling tours, but uh, football more so. So I think uh, it started by, uh, on Twitter, um, and following, okay, I I suppose I should probably kind of backtrack a bit and say my interest in, in soccer or football on social media emerged from my uh, frustration with the main broadcast media in Australia and the lack of coverage of it, which struck me as not mirroring what I perceived to be the level of interest in that particular code in this country and and it seems to me that it's kind of squeezed out in in, uh, in order to give preference to the other major codes here, so I was kind of driven to seek out other channels um, where I could consume, as a fan, uh, information about local um, soccer here in Australia. So I was, I'm one of the unusual people that actually does take a keen interest in the A League. Um, many people I know are kind of cool on that and follow the English or other European leagues, which I also have an interest in. But I, I do think it's important to, you know, support. Uh, football in our own country. So that led me to seek out um, media producers, I suppose I'd describe them as. So, um, you know, bloggers and other writers writing about uh, football Um, and what I discovered was a a real wealth of material, of people writing really intelligent, well-researched, innovative material that I wasn't seeing elsewhere.
0: So, well, some, exa- some examples of that.
1: Um, so, <coughs> uh, for me, one of the the key uh, websites that I stumbled across, which has kind of gone from strength to strength over the last year, is the Leopold Method, um, where it took, you know, very, in the ca- in the case of um, Kate, I've forgotten her second name, one of the writers for that site, quite a, a young. Uh, writer who was writing very, very detailed tactical analyses of A-League and EPL matches on something that you would not see in a a, a daily newspaper. But also given my background in media and cultural studies, um, people like Joe Gorman who were writing uh, kind of what I would see as cultural studies type pieces about uh, the longer history of, of uh, soccer in Australia and its ethnic roots and in a way that um, kind of both defends that history but also puts the growth of, of the commercial side of the A-League in, in a kind of a larger perspective which is really I think welcome and and needed to kind of cut through a lot of the, the hype coming from you know the Football Federation Australia about how how this is this nice shiny new thing where he sort of paints a much kind of more detailed portrait of of that landscape. Is there anything going on
0: within sport that you think is particularly interesting from a mobile perspective, be it sort of apps or like media, these types of things?
1: Yeah, I I do. I think it's personally I think it's a real growth area, and I think the potential of it is probably yet to be fully uh, appreciated and. Um, Realised. I think at the probably local club, kind of junior level, uh, the Fox Sports Pulse app here in Australia has been uh, really fascinating to observe from a professional perspective because one of the key features of that app is a location function where it links each fixture to the actual, um, you know, ground at which that match is being played, and if you you know where, how hidden some local sporting grounds can be, it's been an absolute godsend. Um, but also <coughs> it's been fascinating watching some of the misdirections that they have created. I was, I was showing it open one day to uh, a friend who lived near to um, the ground at which this app was saying the particular match I was interested in was going to be played at, and you say no, the pin's wrong. It's actually they've moved all the matches. They used to be played at that location. They're actually have moved them, you know, 500 meters away to or a kilometer away to a different part of that that reserve area. And so if you go to where the map's saying you'll you'll find no one's there. Um, I mean, they're long-standing kind of mm. geolocational issues. But I think it's uh, it's it's interesting. Professionally to observe that kind of being manifest in another context such as this. Um, that's really, I think, also from a business side of it, for the owners of the Fox Sports Pulse app, that's a treasure trove of data about local engagement and, and use. Which I'd be I'd be fascinated to understand more about what their you know longer term commercial objectives are, because um, I think that that's a free app. But, you know, that's free always comes with scare quotes because what we're, we're giving is our information um, in order to get this fixture information, but in the process that data's been crude. So that's one app that I think is really, I find, fascinating. I think the Australian broadcaster SBS's World Cup app was another example of something that was uh, quite innovative um, in the last World Cup. Um, the opportunity to see different camera angles and things that were embedded in that app, and it had um, some problems that I observed through my own use, trying to watch it on the train on the way to work, where you know it would freeze and all sorts of things like that. But that's the kind of, um, I suppose, you know, multi layers of content that um, those sorts of apps make possible. I think uh, where I'm, an, I'm guessing some of the potential. Lies. Yeah, and it's uh, the
0: point about sort of recreational and club level sports, an interesting one because there is a, a quite a significant market and number of companies, both in Australia and the U.S. and U.K. They're offer and New Zealand, they're, and they're op- often operating in all those contexts, where you, you're seeing the shift from sort of web-based CRM into mobile apps and and native mobile and things like this as a way of collecting user data but yeah you're right the, the the challenge is of course um creating seamless and accurate ways of collecting that data ensuring that the data doesn't have to be entered into multiple at multiple points and where that data flows and who actually owns it because of course you also have quite wealthy local club well comparatively wealthy local clubs who have sometimes the capacity to set up their own yeah. um, either apps or web, mobile-friendly websites. And, of course, this then runs up against league agreements signed with, it, signed with various providers. So sometimes a sports specialist, but also sometimes coming from the broader information technology or telecommunications industries. So you're pointing to... A bit like Foursquare in 2009, you Now, the last three years or so, you're seeing this growth and, and the amount of sort of unexpected mm. conflicts. And the seamlessness that most users expect when they pick up a mobile um, device isn't always quite there, which of course then is sometimes assigned to the appropriate party who, who, and sometimes it's, it's assigned to somebody who isn't actually responsible at all. So how do you, uh, taking a, a, a real step back, how did, how did you come, what's your intellectual background? How did you come to be studying mobile and locative media? Um,
1: uh, my background is fairly, it's taken a fairly diverse um, path, I suppose. I, I did an undergraduate in media and literature, um, actually here at Swinburne, and an honours thesis in cinema studies <laughs> uh, before completing my PhD in architectural theory and history at the University of Melbourne and then I did RA work in the uh, Centre for Australian Studies, (laughs) Um, lecturing in cultural studies before moving back into media and communication and so I think it's been also through that a long long, uh, kind of journey of trying to find my disciplinary home if you like Um, and I think I have found it in media and communication but as my background suggests I I am a a big believer in interdisciplinary research um, beyond the cliche to actually think about how we can create meaningful dialogue between disciplines but learn across disciplines like you know how can geography Uh, speak to media and communications research around questions of location Um, strangely they don't seem to talk to each other very much um, which I find quite odd even though there are pockets of people in geography doing this kind of work and pockets of people in media and communication doing this kind of work Mm -hmm. Um, and the same goes for um, areas of sociology, anthropology and so forth Um, I'm really interested in how Draw from and learn from those uh, disciplines to enrich what it is that you might be trying to understand. I mean, uh, the, for me, these things are complex, multifaceted questions and objects of study that require multiple angles of approach to understand them. And that's throughout so for me, that's important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's very much the model of the classic intellectual. Um, the what's the is there a, a through-line or a thread running throughout that that, that pathway through different... Di- I mean, what's the, the is there a driving question sitting at the heart of these things, or is it, has it been a cha- shifting?
1: Yeah, I suppose that speaks to the second part of your question about how I came to be interested in this area. Um, I suppose for me, technology has always been one through-line, and the other has been questions of space and place and location, which probably didn't emerge to me as a clear theme in my research until um, the early period post my PhD when um, one aspect of my PA, one small part of my PhD was about place and, and mobile technologies. And um, I was uh, able to publish a piece from that and from there I merged a whole kind of research strand that uh, led to the first collection I did with Jared Goggin, mobile technology in place, and then it led to this uh, fellowship that I'm on, and this second collection with Jared, located media, and a book that I'm working on presently.
0: And, and that's probably a nice uh, leaving-off point. What what are you going? To, what can we look forward to over the next 12 to 24 months in terms of the sort
1: of things you're working on? Uh, so I'm wrapping up a series of um, co-authored articles that look at various aspects of this at the moment. I think I'm allowed to talk about this. <laughs> um, so with a, a colleague from uh, Columbia, the country, not the university, Carlos Baranesh, we've been looking at, um, we've been co-authoring a piece that kind of takes the idea that medium specificity is important and so when you look at um, applications like Foursquare and if you look at a company like um, Google and what they're doing, it's imperative that we look closely at both the similarities and the differences and how they're extracting location information and to what ends and what the larger implications of those are. So that's a, a piece that's been finalised at the moment. Um, and another piece done with a colleague um, Ingrid Richardson from Murdoch University uh, where both have a shared interest in phenomenology and or what Ingrid would probably correct me and say post phenomenology so uh, how it is that we actually in a in a bodily and environmental sense I- interact with with mobile devices both in terms of you know our use of uh, hands and eyes and ears and all of our bodily senses but what, um, that, how that shapes our use and our experience of the world around us so uh, we're finalising a book chapter that looks at those questions in relation to the release of Google Glass um, the larger thing I'm working on is a book from my, um, my research fellowship Um, which is titled Cultural Economies of Located Media, um, which will be coming out in a couple of years uh, through Oxford University Press. So that's kind of bringing together all the the larger kind of questions around and all the different approaches I've tried to bring to this of ownership and use and um, privacy and policy. Uh, With Lee Humphreys, who I've done a lot of this collaborative end-user research with, Uh, We have a piece coming out um, soon, hopefully, on small business use of Foursquare, uh, where we ran focus groups in Melbourne and New York City looking at the kind of comparative um, dimensions to small business use. Um, A side project and a labour of love, but it does speak to the through lines that you asked me about, Brett, Mm -hmm. is an edited collection I'm doing with Justin Clemens from the University of Melbourne. Um, that's going to be published with Edinburgh University Press, and it's uh, entitled *The Afterlives of Georges Perec*, which is uh, a collection looking at the way in which the uh, influence and writings and ideas of the 20th-century French experimental writer Georges Perec has been taken up and used in disciplinary contexts outside of French studies and literature. So really in that key kind of theme again is technology uh, how his writings I mean he did everything from palindromes to writing a book without a letter e to all sorts of uh, strange and wonderful things describing uh, what happened in a Paris square over the course of three days by sitting there and writing notes we looked at we're looking at and commissioned a series of Um, what promised to be wonderful essays on how those ideas of his have been taken up in mobile studies in game studies, in architecture in um, digital humanities and a range of um, new media arts a range of areas so that's another uh, project coming that's um, genuinely fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so that should keep me well and truly occupied. Yeah, sounds
0: like it. Look, thank you for joining us for the Moody Sport podcast series. That was uh,
1: a lot of fun. It's been a lot of pleasure. Thanks.